Let me pray again here before we start looking at the scriptures. Father, help us to slow down, clarify our thoughts, uh, be open to you in all the best ways, Lord, to hear what you say in your word. And Lord, I know that all scripture is inspired by you and it's profitable. And I know that's true of the text we're in this morning and ask that your spirit would open our understanding to get just the things you want for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. How many here are talk radio fans or willing to say that they are? Okay. Uh, Talk radio, I have occasion to drive around town semi-regularly, and so I have talk radio on, off and on, as I do. And as I was thinking about this morning, I was thinking of Glenn Beck. How many here are Glenn Beck fans or listeners? Okay. Now... Glenn Beck is a polarizing force in the country, isn't he? Um, I enjoy listening to Glenn Beck. Like any talk radio, it's in measured portions. Can't listen to any of these guys, no matter who they are all day. But enjoy measured doses. Glenn Beck uh, radio program each day tells you he's the third most listened to talk radio show in the country. And uh, he's really successful in a number of ways. He's got a religious fervor about him. And I find that I agree with him on a lot of his positions. He's, he's conservative, and by that I don't just mean politically. He's a guy that tells you, get out of debt. You know, live within your means. Um, he advocates making sure you're investing in your own spiritual life and in your family. This guy's on the radio. This is talk radio. Guy begging people to read their Bibles and to pray. He held a rally in Washington, D.C. in August of this year that drew hundreds of thousands of Christians from around the country, some in our very midst, uh, as well as just patriots from around the country as well who are simply concerned about life in the United States and trying to be a blessing to this country and see this country restored in ways that would be helpful. Great guy in a lot of ways. I find that I'm in agreement with him on several of his positions. But I have a problem with Glenn Beck on the flip side, and I'll bet you know what it is. Uh, Glenn Beck is a Mormon. And as a Mormon, it means he holds a view of Jesus Christ that is not orthodox. And as much as I enjoy listening to him and as many of his positions as I find I agree with, I could not have Christian fellowship with Glenn Beck because among all his sterling characters, orthodox Christianity is not one of them. So love what he says on one hand oftentimes and yet find that there's a real divide there on the other. How far I can go sort of in a relationship or in fellowship with Mr. Beck. Should I go to the rallies Glenn Beck holds? Should I vote for the candidates Glenn Beck advocates? As a follower of Jesus Christ, to what degree can I be in relationship with Glenn Beck? And where must I draw the line and say, that's as far as I can go and no further? The reason I start with this as an illustration is the text we're in this morning in Genesis 21, verses 22 through 34, is about a relationship the patriarch Abraham enters into with a Philistine. And this is really unusual, especially if you were in his, the first Jewish audience for this story. This is really seems a, like a duck out of water. 
what, what are some of the things that govern the kind of alliances we make with people with whom we may not share a lot in common but do have some common ground or share some common interest? What are some of the guidelines that should help shape our thinking as we think about that? So we're in Genesis 21, 22 through 34 this morning. As we pick up, if you remember in chapter 21, we've already said Isaac, the son of promise, has been given to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. And lo and behold, the child of promise no sooner gets here than there's animosity between he and his half-brother Ishmael. And God tells Father Abraham to listen to his wife Sarah and to put out Hagar and Ishmael. They're put out of the fellowship of Abraham and his tribe, his group. God takes care of them in the wilderness. And we pick up at that point here this morning, verse 22. Now it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, and I'll only make a couple insertions here this morning. Those are almost both certainly uh, titles, not personal names. Abimelech means father of the king or something close to that, and Phicol means strength. And those are great names for a king and for the commander of an army. So these are titles. You'll see them both brought up again later in the life of Isaac, Abraham's son, when it's certainly not the same people in view or most likely not. So Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity. But according to the kindness that I have shown to you, you shall show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. This would be the covenant of peace. Verse 28, Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Abimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean which you have set by themselves? He said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hands so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. The lambs are evidence as you take them that this well I have rights to it. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because there the two of them took an oath, and we'll look at this a little bit later, but Beersheba means the well of the oath. Ba'ar means well, and uh, Shabbat means oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, and Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. This was kind of, kind of a quid pro quo agreement Abraham and Abimelech entered into this morning. Look at the first point if you have a study sheet there. Bless me, as it were, Abimelech says. Abimelech comes to Abraham and says, I want something from you. Bless me, Abraham. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the king of a nation state and the commander of his army come to Abraham, little old Abraham, and see in him an equal or even a superior because they are asking him for a covenant of, of peace, a peace treaty, as if they had something to fear from Abraham. Abraham is seen by them as equals at least. 
And I think Abimelech was motivated for a couple of reasons to go to Abraham and head off trouble before it could come. The first reason is this. If you remember when Abimelech met Abraham, it was just as a guy coming through his territory with a beautiful woman in his group. And Abraham had failed to tell him that that beautiful woman was his wife. And so Abimelech had taken Sarah into his harem, hadn't slept with her, and God appears to him in a dream and says, you're a dead man, that woman you took, she's married. He pleads his innocence and says, Lord, I didn't know. God says, I know, and I've kept you from sinning. But restore him. Abraham had been less than forthright in his earlier dealing with Abimelech. And so there's a mistrust element here, I think, for this king. Because I think he's thinking, what else might Abraham not tell me? In what other arena might I get in trouble because Abraham is not trustworthy up front? So he's, he's hedging his bets because he's dealt with Abraham in the past. He's being careful. And the second thing is, he knows that God is with Abraham. And he knows that the God that oversees Abraham's life has the ability to keep his wives from bearing children. He knows Abraham's God has power and he doesn't want to get on the wrong side of him. So Abimelech comes to Abraham and says, promise me you will be at peace with me and with my descendants. And Abraham says, I swear it, you don't have anything to worry about from me. If we hear this today, this may not strike us as odd, but if you were a Jew hearing this story for the first time after it was written, this would sound really, really strange. Remember that the first five books of the Bible were written almost entirely by Moses. And so it was only after Moses that anyone would have read this story, though they may have heard it before. So the first audience that would have read this story were Jews that were part of the Exodus coming into the land of promise. And the Jews were under a direct command by God when he said, when you go into the land of promise, you're to make no covenant with the people of the land because you're to dispossess everyone that's in the land of promise you're to dispossess just as Hagar and Ishmael were kicked out of Abraham's group everyone in the land of promise at the exodus is supposed to be dispossessed so that Israel would come in as a sovereign solitary nation state no covenants with the people of the land and yet here is Abraham father Abraham their forebear making a covenant with a Philistine. And the Philistines, as you read Israel's history, these guys are the most entrenched of all the people groups in the land of promise. And in fact, the Jews never dispossessed the Philistines. And even if you read about David and Goliath, the big guy goes down to the little guy in his sling, the nation of the Philistines, they're never dispossessed. And here is Father Abraham, can you imagine this, making a covenant of peace with the Philistines. And his, his descendants have got to be thinking, what was Father Abraham thinking about? Making an agreement, an arrangement for peace with these guys that are thorns in our side to this day. What's the deal? What gives? The first is this. <clears throat> it was in Abraham's interest to make this peace treaty. Abraham's not a warrior. He's a shepherd. And even though in Genesis 14 when uh, his nephew Lot got in trouble. You remember he, he roused an army, got an army of guys together. He was capable. And they went and they defeated foreign armies. And they brought back Lot and his possessions and the people that had been taken captive. But this was not characteristic of Abraham. He was a man of peace. He's a shepherd. He wants to take care of his family and his animals. 
So here's a king. He's living adjacent to it. says, hey, let's make an agreement. You won't bother me. You won't harm me or mine. And I won't harm you or yours. And this made sense. I'm in this land. This is a neighbor saying, I want to be at peace with you. This is a good thing. And this was an appropriate thing in his day. Also, when Abraham's living, even though God has said, I'm going to give you all that land of promise, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are wanderers in the land of promise. They're not possessors of it. And it's interesting. Uh, We've got a story about a well this morning. And Abraham says, hey, acknowledge that I've got rights to the well. And he does. And later on, you'll read about Abraham buying a piece of land. He's got title to a piece of land. And what is that piece of land? It's a cave where he buries his dead wife. So even though this was the land of promise, Abraham possesses a cave later, and he's got rights to a well. That's it. Because God had told him, I'm giving you this land, but it's going to be 400 years from now. After your descendants have been in a foreign land, I'm going to bring them back. And at that point, they're going to possess the land of promise, but you're not. You won't. Isaac won't. Jacob won't. So these guys are sojourning it. They're not possessing it. They're in the land of promise, but they're not possessing the land of promise. And God's call on their life was different than the nation of Israel that will come in 400 years later. So Abraham's guaranteeing peace for his family, a good thing. He's also being a blessing to the nation next door to him at a time in which he's not occupying the whole land anyway. So this made sense in his day and at his time. So Abraham's making a covenant of peace with a nation living in the same place he is. He's establishing peace for himself and promising peace, being a blessing as far as he's able to with his neighbor. This was a good thing. So Abimelech gets something out of this treaty, promise of peace. Abraham wants something, though, out of this meeting too. So bless me, Abimelech says, and Abraham says, yes, and Abimelech bless me as well. Abraham's gripe is this. Your people have taken my well. I dug this well. And it's my right to use it, and yet your people, the Philistines, have taken the use of my well. So Abimelech, I want you to recognize my right to use this well. I dug it, and I want it. You know, in the Middle East, water is everything. And if you don't get water in the Middle East, you'd look like the sands of the Arabian Peninsula. There's no life. You know, there's nothing there but sand and dryness. And in fact, I've seen pictures of the Jordan River. You know, Israel's a prosperous nation today. But if you see pictures of sections of the Jordan River, it looks like the Shunga Creek, a poor version of the Shunga Creek. And I've looked at pictures and I thought, there's no way that's the Jordan River. No, that's the Jordan River. And the reason is because more than half the flow of the Jordan River is diverted for agricultural use. Jordan, the nation of Jordan today, has a gripe, an ongoing gripe with Israel because of the amount of water Israel diverts out of the Jordan River because it's life. It's, and it's used for agricultural uses to this day. But water is everything for life in a dry, arid place like the land of promise. And you see in the scriptures this element, this theme or symbol of water representing life again and again and again. And the best of those is in John 7 where Jesus says that those who believe in me, the Holy Spirit in them will be like a river of life gushing out from their inmost being. Life is represented in the scriptures oftentimes by water. 
And wells play a significant role in the life of Abraham and his relatives. And so think of Abraham's story so far. Two times Hagar has met God at a well. Genesis 16, when she flees from Sarah, Sarah's harsh to her. She runs away. God meets her at a well and says, go back. And in chapter 21, just earlier, when Hagar and Ishmael are put out, and she falls down and she cries out to God and she thinks Ishmael is going to die. What happens? She sees a well of water again. God meets her at her point of need in a barren land at a well of water. Think of this too though. Uh, Genesis 24. I hope you guys really appreciate my speaking voice because it's so pretty and I love to teach, but I do not have a great voice for teaching. Uh, Later on in Genesis 24, Abraham's servant. Do you remember Abraham commissions his servant, go get a wife for my son Isaac? And where does he meet that wife? Meets her at a well, Miss Rebecca. And wow, I wonder where Jacob meets his wife, Rachel. Wow, that's at another well. There's a common theme here, isn't it? God is meeting these people at their point of need at a well, and the well represents life and provision and fullness and blessing. And these stories hinge on wells, wells of water. This well is important too. When you continue reading the story in Genesis, you'll see that Isaac comes back to this well later. And Jacob comes back to this well later. And in fact, when the nation of Israel comes into the land, if you do a word search on Beersheba you'll see that by, by far the most common use is to delineate the boundaries of the nation of Israel. So the common phrase was from Dan up in the north to Beersheba in the south. That meant all of Israel. Beersheba becomes the marker of the southern boundary of Israel after the Exodus. So this is an important well for Abraham now but also for the future as well. And thinking of wells too, winding down, Isaac, you'll see in his life, battles over wells with guess who? With the Philistines. Same thing, looking for water, looking for a place of peace. And lastly, when Moses finds a wife, where is it? Finds her at a well. So guys, if you're looking for a good woman, I don't know if there's any wells around here. Anyway, do what you can. Go to the water. Wells are important. Water was important. It was, it was a symbol of life, and it's the point at which God meets these folks at their point of need with his provision at these wells. So having given Abimelech a pledge of peace, Abraham now says, and I want something from you. I want you to acknowledge my right to this well, you and your people both. I want to live here in peace. I want to know that I've got this water supply. And so Abraham sets out seven lambs for Abimelech to take, And when Abimelech took those, he was acknowledging, that's your well, these lambs are a reminder, you have the right to that well, you dug it, and it's yours. Now, the name Beersheba is sort of a pun, it's a play on words. So Ba'ar, Be'er, means well, and Shavah means oath. But the word Shavah comes from Shevah, and that means seven. And so this well is the well of the oath and it's also the well of seven or in biblical numerology, seven means fullness or completeness. And we assume that's probably part of the reason why 
the word for seven is tied to the thought of oath or promise. It's that you're good for it. You'll complete it. You'll perfect what you said or you promised. And guess how many times the word for oath or seven is used in this passage? Seven times. So it's the well of the oath. It's the well of perfection or fullness or life. It's a little bit of a play on words. This is the well or the oath where oaths are taken and given. And it's also this place where both Abraham and Abimelech profited by gaining peace with each other. It's the place of fullness or perfection. Abimelech has a promise of peace. Abraham has the rights to the well. The last point out of the story is this. Uh, The story doesn't end before it tells us that Abraham planted a tree and then he called on the name of the Lord. He planted a tree and he called on the name of the Lord. If you go back in Genesis 12, when Abraham had come into the land, he goes to a tree and and it's called the tree of Moreh. and, And in Hebrew, that means it's the tree of the teacher. And we sort of assumed when we looked at that, there was probably a pagan shrine. And Abraham goes there, but he doesn't stay there. And right after that, it says he built an altar and he called on the name of the Lord. In contrast to hanging out at the tree the pagans used, he built his own altar. And when it says he called on the name of the Lord, we understand that that meant he was making public proclamation about Yahweh, the living and true God that had called him into this land. He built an altar and he called on the name of the Lord. Here, he's not building an altar, but he's planting a tree. And he's planting a tree by a place of water. And this tree is going to outlive him. And just like the altars he had erected in the land of promise, there's going to be a tree growing at the well of Beersheba that will be a reminder to him in the future and to his sons and his grandsons that this was the place of promise. And this is where Father Abraham called on God and God provided for his needs. And again, you think in the scriptures of a tree by water. I hope that brings up some figures in your mind. Do you remember Psalm 1? That the man who trusts in the Lord meditates in God's word day and night. And that man is like a tree planted by canals or streams of water. And he's fruitful in all he does. And later on, hundreds of years later, in the days of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, God says the same thing through Jeremiah. That the man who trusts in God, he's like a tree by water. He flourishes, he grows. He's got everything God wants for him. So here, Abraham plants a tree, and it's a testimony, it's a memorial to what God had done, to what God had provided, and to confidence in God in the future. Sorry, I I get in the wrong place over here sometimes. Um... Not an altar, but a tree, a living reminder next to the place of life, water, that God had met Abraham at his point of need and he would do so for his descendants as well. And again, this this well will come up in the future of his children. So right after Abraham makes a covenant with a Philistine nation, the story doesn't end until it tells us he turns away from Abimelech He plants a tree, and he calls on the name of the Lord. If we were tempted to think that Abraham was somehow capitulating in his faith, 
by making an agreement with a Philistine king, our, our concerns are, are taken care of here. No, Abraham hasn't capitulated. He hasn't been assimilated by the Philistines. He still knows who he is. He knows who, he, who his God is. And he's still putting testimonies on the earth. And he's still declaring the truth of Yahweh, the living and true God who'd called him into this land. Same thing he'd done in Genesis chapter 12. We don't have to worry that Abraham was being assimilated by the Philistines. Now, this is sort of a nice little story, but it always gets down to the so what factor. Uh, this is part of Abraham's life, but what does this mean for us today? What can we take away from it? You might have some other things you take away. I'm going to suggest two this morning. The first is this. We're called, like Abraham, to be at peace with others as far as we're able to be. You remember that Abraham knew that he was commissioned by God to be an agent of blessing, not just to himself and his descendants, but to the nations of the earth. And Abraham really was a man of peace. And as far as he could be, he was at peace with others. And that's exactly what Christians are called to today, very clearly in the New Testament. In Romans 12, 8, Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. A Christian should not be known for their acrimony or that we're a contentious lot. There are some things we can't be at peace with others over. Some things are, are too important. We can't be at peace. We understand that. But we should not be known for contention or for, for not sowing the seeds of peace when it's possible for us to do so. You know, James, when he talks about wisdom in James 3, says that the wisdom from above sows the seeds of peace. And you and I should be characterized, like Abraham was here, as those who pursue peace. Hebrews 12, 14 says that. We should pursue peace with all men. should be what we're characterized by. 1 Timothy 2, 2, Paul tells us to pray for kings and those who are in authority so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness. Peace is supposed to characterize our lives as it did Abraham's. Alan Ross says, one of the commentary authors that I use to keep myself honest when I prepare in Genesis, he said this about this portion, peaceful relationships with those who recognize the blessing of God will allow the faithful believer to proclaim his name freely. That's what you see Abraham doing here. Or we may say it this way, the blessing of peace and prosperity facilitate the believer's proclamation of the faith. Peace allows us to freely continue to proclaim Christ just as Abraham had Yahweh. And last, a passage uh, Kent Vincent will be getting to not too far down the road here. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called the sons of God. So Father Abraham here, given to peace where he can be at peace with his neighbors is a great example and a great reminder to us. The second point, second point of application, sometimes like Abraham's covenant with Abimelech, we engage with others in order to achieve a common benefit even when we don't share the same faith. As I was thinking about this, I'm thinking primarily the political arena. It's the one that most easily comes to my mind. <clears throat> Politics, it said, make strange bedfellows and that is surely the point. And you know, sometimes it's unbelievable the coalescence of, of similar or competing interests that in politics brings people together who would not be together on any other issue, 
but some point of common ground brings them together for a common purpose, something that benefits them both. Uh, Mike Patton and I were talking this last week, and we were just talking about politics briefly. Mike said, Mike told me that it was common for the Indian tribes who own casinos to make regular substantial contributions to politicians who oppose gambling. And I was thinking, wow, what is with this? What does that mean? What's the common thread? What's the point of common ground? Mike was nice enough to enlighten me. He says, well, you know, the Indian tribes don't want competition. So they've got casinos now, and they, they don't want to see any more casinos, so they support the guys who say no more casinos. And then it's clear. They've got common ground. The tribes with casinos have common ground with the politicians who oppose expanding gambling. Then it all makes sense. You say, that's the point of interest. That's the point of commonality that serves both of them. We've just gone through an election cycle. And you know, uh, in politics, we give our vote or we support a candidate or a party because we believe that we share common ground. We share points of interest that we want to support someone else on. We believe there's a common benefit that through supporting this candidate or this party that somehow we're encouraging the things that make for peace in our own lives and, and Lord willing, make for peace in the nation, make the United States a better place to live. But of course, we're often disappointed, aren't we, with how far we can press that point of common ground, for instance. You know, here, Abraham and Abimelech, they kept their, uh, their expectations, I would say, relatively low, very narrow, very specific. Abimelech says to Abraham, I just want to know I don't have to worry about you doing harm to me or my people. And Abraham says, great. And Abraham says, and I just want to know from you that I've got the rights to this well, that you guys aren't going to contend with me over this water source here in the desert. And Abimelech says, hey, no problem. Part of the problem for us oftentimes when we make alliances with people, especially in politics, I think, is we load on the expectations of what we're going to share in common and what we're going to be able to get from the other party. Boy, and then disappointment, it's rife. You know, the point of agreement should be important but they tend to be narrow. So you may find yourself supporting someone in a political arena that you wouldn't support in any other arena because you share common ground, some point of interest over which you say, we can work together on this. In a narrow sphere, a narrow but important sphere, we can work together on this because we share this thing in common. We need to, I think we need to be careful about the expectations we raise in our own minds. I think we need to be Uh, informed. We need to be less naive. I think as a group, I think as Christians in the United States, we tend to think we can accomplish more politically than we can at times. And I think we're naive in how far we can press those alliances. It's good to do things. It's good to make alliances. It's good to have agreements in limited spheres with other people with whom we share something in common that's a benefit to both. But in Abraham and Abimelech's sense, it was very narrow and it was very specific. And if we can enter those alliances also very thoughtfully, carefully in the sense that we know what we're getting into, we're supporting something that's a good thing both for us and for others as well, that's a good way to see these alliances. Abraham, no doubt shocking his descendants by making a treaty 
a covenant with a Philistine king, unthinkable in their minds. And yet in his day, it was a point of mutual benefit to each party and something God had not prevented or told Abraham not to do. So there are alliances we can enter into. We just want to be careful about what our expectations are. After Abraham made that covenant with Abimelech, he turned around and he went back to worshiping Yahweh. And that's sort of the way I think we need to take away with this as well. That we can make alliances with our food co-ops, in our educational circles, in political, in the political sphere arena as well. You, you might have, think of others in which we share something in common with someone that we wouldn't otherwise. We can work together in that point of common interest. But that doesn't affect and should not affect our turning around and then giving God through Jesus Christ, our unadulterated, unassimilated devotion, if you will. When I thought of Glenn Beck in this, uh, I'm free to agree with Glenn Beck on a number of things. And again, find that many of the positions he holds, I do agree with. I have common cause, if you will. But that point aside, I don't agree with Mr. Beck on the things related to the scripture and the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so on that point, I don't think in my mind that I hold that in common. And I don't put that expectation on him. And I pray that Mr. Beck will end up serving the same God and declaring the name of the same Savior in the future that I do today. But I don't extrapolate that the narrow common ground we share includes my faith in Jesus Christ. So there are times and there are arenas, there are limited spheres in which we can make agreements with others, arrangements with others, because it shares a common good, but that doesn't mean, and it should not in any way, pull us away from a single-mindedness, a single view of Jesus. Those alliances should serve the greater good that we're called to to worship the Lord. I think at the bottom of your study sheet, let me conclude with this. Part of the secret in knowing when we can and cannot make short-term arrangements with others in order to secure a common good is to ask the question, does this alliance compromise my ability to walk with God in truth? Does it compromise my ability to communicate the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ and to call upon the name of the Lord? You know, at the end of the day, we should be known not as a dependable vote in the political arena. We should be known as Abraham was, as those who call, declare the name of the living and true God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be our primary, uh, that should be the way people know us. That should be our primary reputation. We're willing to work with others where we can, to be at peace with others, to share points of common ground, to work together for a common good. But at the end of the day, let there be no mistake, we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and we call on the name of the Lord just as Father Abraham did here with the Philistines. God, help us to be people of peace who benefit this nation. God, help us like Abraham was called to, to bless the nations of the world as well through calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it is so easy to get confused in our life here. There are so many interests that pull at us one direction or another.
Help us to stay single-minded and focused on you, our relationship with you, and the ways in which you want us to be a blessing to the world around us. Lord, I know primarily that means calling on the name of the Lord, declaring the truth that Jesus Christ is your Son who came to the earth to die on the cross for our sins, to redeem us to you, to enjoy eternal life in your presence. Lord, when we share points of common ground and common interest, help us to wisely and prudently enter into those in a way that's a blessing to us and to those around us. But Lord, help us never to forget that our primary calling is to build altars. It's to erect testimonies. It's to call on your name. It's to make known Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he's done with us. Lord, we submit ourselves to you again this morning in his name, and we ask you to use us as your agents on the earth to make you known. In Jesus' name, amen.